Welcome everyone to the 33rd episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. Nick, it's Friday and we were just talking about how dark it is. Yes, it's been, a, it was a bad week, honestly, in terms of weather. It was nice last week. This week, it's not so much anymore. And uh, with everything going on, it's kind of lining up weather-wise, socially, politically, economically, you know, everything's just starting. We're about to enter a new year. You know, it's, it's, things are building it, slowly, quietly, because I don't think people are really observing what we're observing. But I think eventually with the, the winter lockdown, people not distracted by summer or sun or whatever, things are going to start coming more to light because people won't have time to see anything else. 100%. I think with the uh, December 21st, that's when the days get longer. So, mm. But there is a topic that we're really interested in. Um, we haven't really talked about it much. Um, and it's along the lines of the entire ecosystem being linked to it. And um, it's immigration and yeah. something that doesn't get talked about a lot. And I'm actually very happy that we've got a very unique guest on today. Um, he's from Montreal. Um, he's got his own business. He's a entrepreneur, runs a immigration company specifically for uh, U.S. immigration. Um, graduated from the University of Miami, uh, as well as Concordia University. Um, and he's been at it with his own firm for about well over a year now. The firm's called Silver Immigration. And he is also an Amazon bestselling author. <laughs> Welcome uh, to the New Gen Mindset podcast, Matthew Silver. That's a great introduction. Thank God for LinkedIn, right? I think that's also how we kind of just connected too, right? Yeah, I, I was just having this conversation uh, earlier with my brother that I think people are now more than ever much more willing and open to connect over LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. As maybe pre-pandemic, people might have been a little hesitant or, uh, you know, uh, they, they might have not understand that it could be a personal and normal way to network. Uh, and especially the older generation that might have just sort of dismissed it. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm using LinkedIn a lot more these days. Yeah. Same here, actually. It's, it's definitely a good tool, um, to really just, you know, and that's how we got this interview set up here too today. So thanks. Thanks again for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. And, uh, just tell us real quickly, what got you to want to be specifically in the immigration part and in the immigration niche for your career? Yeah, well, I sort of uh fell into it a little bit um I like most kids in law school didn't really know what I wanted to do so I you know tried a whole whack of different things I um I did some work in bankruptcy which uh I found interesting but uh didn't really take I did some really cool internships I worked at uh Bacardi in-house I worked uh the sports department at the University of Miami um just really trying out a couple different areas of law, nothing really stuck. Uh, found myself in Toronto. Uh, I was doing a master's at the time at Osgood. And, you know, uh, I, I went out for drinks one night with a teacher after work. It was the last day of class. And uh, we were just uh, talking about, um, you know, career, career goals. And he happened to know some people in the field, introduced me to them. Uh, we hit it off. I was ended up working for a firm out in Toronto for a year, not super long, and fell in love with uh, with the field. I think it's one of the really rare industries, um, or within the legal subset, that is, where you get sort of um, you know uh, quick turnaround on cases. So you're able to appreciate wins fairly regularly and. Also, there's a nice, you know, intrinsic reward. You, you, you feel like you're doing some, something good and at the same time growing a business. So it, it sort of all really lined up beautifully. Nice. And when you, when you first started, I guess, in law, I mean, everybody had to go through the, the, the bar exam. I mean, all the, you know, exams that most people had to get through. But um, when you started your firm in particular, um, why did you decide to start it and what, you know, what type of clients are you dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, well, first I'll say something quickly about the bar because it, it, it's, it was when I wrote, because I, I wrote the Ontario and Florida bar, the Florida bar specifically, 
um, was a really great exercise in discipline. Um, I, I don't think I've ever had a stretch like that in my life when, when I've been so singularly focused on a goal. Um, so beyond all the substantive law stuff, having uh, a really short-term and long-term goal like right in front of you um, was, you know, principles that I learned from that experience. I apply, you know, in, in my day-to-day -day practice in terms of setting a goal and achieving it. Um, and then why did I start the firm? Well, I was, when I was in Toronto, I was, you know, doing the work and, and liking it and, and realizing that I was, you know, um, able to handle a pretty solid caseload and handle everything A to B, uh, A to Z, I should say. And I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit, um, which I'm sure you guys could appreciate. Mm -hmm. The main criticism that I was getting when I was sort of shopping around this idea to people was that I was, you know, maybe a little too young or too inexperienced. Um, to, to, Classic. To yeah, yeah it, it, it's very sort of short-sighted, right? You know, in, in my opinion, it would be much more difficult for someone who's, you know, 55 years old, married, bunch of kids, to then quit his high-paying job to then start uh, a firm. So yeah, There's a lot more risk. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's exactly that. It's a lot more risk. So I, uh, I, I decided to go at it on my own. I think it's you know, by far the best decision I've ever made. And right off the bat, my most of my clients were coming from word of mouth, different people um, in the community who, you know, who, who, who knew about me. Um, and then slowly but surely, you know, it, it snowballs where, you know, you do something good for one client that leads into them telling another client, which leads into another. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you build up a client list. So that's, that was sort of the inception of it all. So it wasn't the, it would the, the, so I'm guessing the direct intention was to necessarily create the firm. It was just that as you started building your network, you started giving value to people and your name started moving around. Eventually you saw that there was a need for you to do that. Or was it directly from the get go as well, I want to create my own thing. It was a, it was, it was a bit of both. It, there, okay. there was certainly the intention of, I want okay. to create my own thing because, um, you know, it's, and I think our generation appreciates this a little more, which is the work-life balance aspect of, uh, of life. And, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll look around and I'll see the, the, the different lawyers that I know who, who've got no control or say over their work-life balance. And I wanted to, you know, sort of have that control. Um, so that was really the big draw in starting my own firm. And my reputation did grow probably quicker than, quicker than I would expect. Um, pretty quickly, I had people calling me saying, oh, I've heard about you, just do the grapevine. Um, so we, we gained traction relatively quickly. Now for me, like, I'm curious now about your book because I'm a writer. I wrote, I wrote myself a book also. Did you self-publish on Amazon yourself? I self-published, but not through Amazon. What, okay. uh, what, 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 what I'm a self, I self-published. So I just self-published a book called the uh, intelligent millennial, which is kind of a play on the intelligent investor from Benjamin okay. Gay, Benjamin. So the premise of the book yeah. was just that moving forward because of the systemic problems in terms of a collaborative ecosystem, economically, politically, socially, I just theorized kind of like the systems, uh, ecosystems, uh, dynamic structure through a, a structural diagram. And then basically I broke it down, theorized how we could optimize it as an ecosystem because the premise is that later on down the line, millennials are the one inheriting all the top positions of our ecosystem, politically, socially, economically. Millennials are going to be the primary generation to kind of take over after boomers. So for me, the way I saw it was there's a huge gap occurring because economically speaking, socially, ideology, we're, we're not as productive, even though we have a bigger ego, that we're kind of overconfident, but we don't want to work as hard. And with everything we've done socially and economically, I kind of saw that down the line, there was a gap occurring that when we inherit everything that they've produced, built, and over leveraged at the same time, there's, there's a fear that we may not be able to sustain that ecosystem down the line. So the premise of the book was just that, you know, we, things need to change. And as millennials, we need to become smarter and wake up in order to ensure that when that transition occurs from boomer to millennial, well, we're mm. able to do it. It's an interesting theory. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit gloomy when you put it like that. 
Yeah. Um, but it's because I, the, you know, like to see the light, you have to focus on the dark or else you can't fix yeah. a problem, you know? So yeah, just tell me about your book because I'm, I, it's rare to see people who write, especially at our age. Yeah. Well, I, um, for me, so when I was in law school, uh, in the States, when, whenever you would start a class, you would get, uh, you know, you would get these big old textbooks and then through the grapevine, you know, the kids in a class uh, a year ahead of you would say, okay, you also have to buy this supplementary book, mm. um, which at the time is like mind blowing. It's like they give you like a 500 page book and then some kids telling you, trust me, read this other book. <laughs> it's <laughs> like the spark notes, right? It, that's exactly what it is. Exactly. It's exactly what it is. But it's a hard thing to grasp. It's like your workload's insane. Yeah. Um, suffice to say, those books are the most helpful thing in the world. And then like I said before, I was, I was studying at Osgood and I just assumed that these Sparknote type books were, you know, uh, uh, available um, in Canada. And, and I realized that one Canadian law schools just don't use them. And the more I looked, the more I didn't really see any of those kinds of books uh, in the field of immigration. So the book I wrote is sort of based on that. It's, it's my version of you know, if someone was taking a short course in immigration and it was like a three week long course and they said, okay, I need all the most important stuff, the most important cases, the most important laws, um, where could I get it? So that's basically the theory of the book. It's, it's, it's half like a, a guide. Book. Yeah, it's half a guide, half a law book, okay. kind of a reference tool. Um, I actually personally, personally use it a lot because I know, I know how it's organized so well. So when I'm thinking, yeah about a certain case or a certain law that I can't remember. I know exactly where it is in that book. Um, but that was basically the idea for it. And, you know, I, I'm sure, Nick, you could speak to this as well. There, there's something about, you know, doing the research and, and putting you know, the pen to page or mm -hmm. where you you gain sort of a deeper understanding of what you're writing about, oh, even if yeah, you, so much. Ideas, you you, you grasp it on a different level. So I entirely agree with you on that one. <laughs> I was so obsessed. It was the first time, like I, you know, like I did university, I did CJ, we all did it. But honestly, like I was not the kid that enjoyed school. I really despised it. I found it boring. I did accounting. Like I hated my, most of my teachers. I really did not, I didn't have the energy to school. I didn't care to write papers. All of a sudden I find myself during COVID watching the world with my obsession over finance and economics. And then I'm like, things are not, functioning something's happening right now mm -hmm. so i started kind of going down the rabbit hole of like dynamic optimization and behavioral optimization in relation to economics and how the ecosystem kind of behaves and i was i just kept going deeper and deeper and i'm like you know what let me just write something i started writing and i was at two thousand words i got to five thousand words i got to ten thousand i was like okay at this point this is becoming a book so i started <laughs> structurizing and it took me three weeks to write this i was spending like eight to ten hours a day writing Three weeks with, is incredibly fast, by the way. I know, I know, I'm fully aware. I've had people tell me it's not a book because you spent three weeks. I go, I spent almost my entire day reading, writing, yeah. and editing. Like I reread my book ten times, and I was going mad. I couldn't read it anymore because I was tired. And, and <laughs> there's another part to it too, which I find that millennials don't get often. Um, there's something specifically rewarding about having a physical product of something you made. You know, it's like a newspaper oh, too, right? Right. Like most of us aren't building anything physical in our day-to-day, -day, right? Like you guys are finance guys. I'm in law. There's nothing physical. I can't see my work in, in really any other capacity. So to be able to physically get the book. Um, was I was also so proud of myself when yeah, I finished that. You know, it felt, I felt like I produced something, like you said. And then now it's like I can share it with people. You want to understand how I think, read this. This is, this is a representation of how I think, of how I'm capable of structurizing things. Like, it, I just found it. It became an extension of myself. And I enjoy writing a lot more now because of it. It really, really shifted the way I looked at writing. And I find that writing kind of helps you, like you said, right? It solidifies your understanding of the topic. If you can write it and explain it, I find it helps to validate that I do understand what I'm reading. And there's also something about editing your own mm -hmm. work where you'll see holes in it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it, it previously would have been in your mind, a fully formed idea and thought, but then when you edit your own work, um, Absolutely. you holes in it. So a hundred percent that's, I restructured like 10 times in that process. I kept restructuring, restructuring, restructuring. And, and the truth is writing a book is a much more doable task than most people think it mm -hmm. is. Um, if you got the time, you could kind of just do it. 
which uh, I think is lost on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I, I actually want to talk about that right now because this is like perfect. You're talking about just doing stuff. Um, growing up to like, I, I, like we all went to school, right? Procrastination was like a theme. And it was like, if you procrastinated, you were like the cool kids, you know? But the reality is the more you procrastinated, the more you realized like, shit, I should probably get this done like ASAP. Yeah. So I think the struggle right now for most millennials too, and just, you know, people, even Gen Z's for that matter, because they are, they're right behind us realistically is, you know, you have a plan, right? You've got it down. Why aren't you doing it? So like, I don't know, maybe you could talk about that. Like when, even when you're just doing something that's aligned with your goals or when you wrote the book, like what, what can we tell people to just say like, dude, just do it. You know, like how do we, how do we get them to do something? I'm, I'm getting this specific question a lot because over the past six months, had a lot of law students and a lot of people who are thinking about going into law call me up and, you know, they, they might know me through, through whatever, but I've, I've had a lot of these phone calls where it's, you know, somebody who just doesn't know what to do right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic, no one can find jobs and they're lost and they don't have direction and they don't know how to be productive. When the truth is, it's really easy to be productive. There are a million different routes. You could join different organizations. You could volunteer. You could blog. You could do stuff on social media. You could have a podcast. There, there, there are a million ways to be productive in your field. But people, at least the students that I, I've been speaking to lately, are very, they, they've got like blinders on. It's tunnel vision. It's okay. I need an internship at a big law firm. And that's the only thing that's going to get me to the next step. They can't see beyond that. Um, I don't have a good answer for you, Dan, Dan about what to tell people outside of. Just you know, get out there. Yeah, you, you got to just be more creative in, in your thinking. And look, there's no one route to get to where you want to be. And to be honest, you probably don't even know where you want to be. You know, the, the, your, your life goals are going to change a million times over. So, um, Shoot, just got to get after it. That, that's really what it boils down to. Honestly, Dan, did you see you? Like, I don't think you saw yourself doing this podcast. I, when I went, I did accounting. And when I got to university, I went to Italy. I came back. I started waitering because I was making more money waitering than I was doing corporate job. I was making a lot more money. So I said, I'm just going to go focus on cash flow for now. I'll figure out what I was going to do after. And then as I started making cash flow, I was like, well, I got to start making my money go to work. So then I delved down the rabbit hole of really, really caring about my money. And then I just became obsessed with finance and economics. It, it, it was more just random, but it was, let me get out there and let me care. Let me just, and then I met Dan and then we started, you know, let's do a podcast. The amount of people we get to meet now and talk to and just converse with, I, I don't care if nothing really comes out of it because at the end of the day, I get to benefit purely through conversation and getting to collaborate with minds and see how people think. And, you know, like, it's like writing a book by collaborating and communicating with others. I get to reflect and then restructure my thought process based on what I'm trying to do. And I think school, man, students, millennials, like the, the guy we spoke with, uh, I spoke with last week, he's a, uh, he's a manager at a private wealth company. Well, they mm-hmm. strategic, so they focus on gold allocation and precious metals for wealthier clients. And he was talking about how, like, this is a conversation we're having, you know, like millennials, one of the biggest issues is they're very short-term sighted. So because they're very term, sh- short-term sighted, they have a lot of chaotic behavior. And as a consequence, they don't, a lot of them don't understand long-term horizons. So one of the reasons why millennials can't really understand the value of gold, let's say for say, and only older people or wealthier people do is because their horizon has not gone beyond a short-term parameter or because at the end of the day, economies cycle. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it's just that like, I find that, like you said, you know, millennials, it, they just want things to come to them. They don't want to go out, produce their outcome which is kind of dabbling down economic philosophy of production, allocation, and consumption. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I also think, you know, to sort of sum it up, it, it's a bit of a lack of creativity. It's a lack of hustle. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, like, I, I fully under, understand the problem that you, you, you're sort of, you know, talking about here. But I, I don't I don't think that the, the, there's a real answer for it. I, I think oh. people just sort of find that drive intrinsically and, you know, you, you got it or you don't. I do know some people who have developed it over time. I, I know, you know, uh, honestly, my closest friend, a guy I grew up with, was the laziest student through high school, university. He, he never cared. 
he is now by far the most hard, hardest working, brightest lawyer, you know, uh, that, that I know. So it, it is something that could be developed, mm-hmm. uh, but it's got to come from within. Mm-hmm. Purpose. I think you, the way you're trying to say it is like, you, you just got to find some sort of purpose to align yourself with. And once you do, you can then just penetrate and go, okay, I'm, I can see myself doing this long-term. I'm willing to give my energy, my mental, you know, because in economic philosophy, there's three primary economic actions. There's, um, production, there's producing, there's consumption, and there's uh, allocation. If you allocate time and energy and you try to produce your outcome, you'll be able to consume and attain whatever you want in life, but you have to put effort and time into it. So in order to produce the outcome, so without you consuming time by allocating it towards some sort of, like you said, man, whether you go see meet people, you go to networking events, you go to organization, you do five different jobs over five years just to see what you like, like you did, right? You did different things. You saw what fit, what didn't fit, and it helped narrow you in and guide you by coincidence, led you down the path that you actually enjoyed, but through trial and error, which is also the same premise of evolution, you know, trial and error kind of builds uh, perfection in a way, but not real perfection. Yeah, but a, lot but- people, a, a lot of people have the, that, you know, that fear of failure. So trial and error to them might cripple them from the outset. Um, True. I, I've never really thought like that, but, but I think, uh, I think a lot of my peers might, uh, might be of that mindset. Especially with do, the do short think- term. Yeah, especially with short term as well. But do you also think that maybe, um, and we're talking, we're gonna we're gonna get to the immigration aspect of this too. But um, do you think that education maybe needs a bit of a reform at this point, just given the way the whole system is kind of set up? And like, um, don't get me wrong, law school. I mean, I don't know what that was like, but I understand that it is structured. It needs to be everybody needs to do the bar exam to at least practice law at some point. But do you think education is at some point due for a reform? Well, I, I, I might be in, in the minority here because I don't think that people should have to write the bar exam. I kind of I think it makes sense. So How come? To give, you, to give you an idea, so I went to Miami three years. I passed all my tests, did everything. There's nothing about the actual bar exam that's particularly reflective of your legal skills. It's completely unrealistic. So what it is, it's two days, back-to-back days, eight hours each day, closed book. In no scenario is that ever going to happen to me in the real world, where I'm going to be locked in a room for two days, back to back, eight hours with no resources, no books or no laptops, no internet. So it's, it's, I don't know, the test doesn't make sense. And, you know, you've, in my mind, proved everything you need to at that point by graduating law school. So I kind of think that the bar exam itself could be done away with. or optimized in order way to be more reflective of being able to access resources or just, you know, being able to gather, you know, be, okay. Here's the, the textbook that most lawyers would turn to, to, you know, figure this out. You have your computer to type and you know, that's, that would make a little bit more sense to me. Um, in terms of entire education reform, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I grew up in Montreal. I, I believe you guys did too. So now with Leola, <laughs> right? So I didn't really see. much standardized testing growing up. Mm. Um, the LSAT was the first real standardized test that I had, and I would say that LSAT actually was pretty close to you know to reflective of being of of, of showing the of evidencing legal skills, and that the way that they worded questions and the way it was structured. It was a pretty good indicator of uh, how well you would do in law school and be a lawyer. So, um, yeah, I would keep the LSAT, get rid of the bar. That'd be my take. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Uh, One of the things that Nick and I have always been talking about is sort of like the economic system as a means of migration, right? And you're obviously the expert, you're, you're, you're in the expertise of just immigration law, particularly with U.S. visas, right? So I guess going forward, like there's going to be opportunities now because the U.S. is, I think we can all agree, the U.S. right now is at a tipping point. Um, we still don't know. Th- yeah, it's an understatement. <laughs> we still don't know the results of this election officially, right? Mm-hmm. Still to be determined. We don't know what's going to happen next year. This pandemic has pretty much destroyed small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see the immigration for mm. work visas? Let's say Canadians moving to the U.S., I'm like a candidate, just, just full disclaimer, but 
you know, Canadians go to the U S and then you've got Americans who don't like where they're at, but they're like, Hey, like we want to come to Canada. So like, where do you see the trends going and how do yeah, you exactly. affect sort of the economic you, landscape? You get us? it. You get as speculative as you want because forward looking <laughs> is all speculation. So like, don't be afraid to just speculate because it helps contextualize for us. There's a few trends that I see happening very clearly one more clearly than the other. Coming to Canada, big tech companies over the past few years have set up shop in Canada because they couldn't deal with immigration. Mm -hmm. Facebook, Google, mm -hmm. um, Amazon built big facilities and headquarters on you know our, our side of the border because it's much easier for them to get their you know their technicians and their managers and their executives. Every you know they could get them into Canada much easier than they could do it to the states. So Canada seen a benefit directly of U.S. immigration's poor policies. Absolutely, there's, there's, there's no two ways about that. That's happening. On the U.S. side, it's definitely more speculative, but I'm pretty optimistic about what the new administration is going to bring. Because, so the first thing that Biden's done so far is he nominated a new Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas is his name. He used to run USCIS, which is the division under uh, DHS, which oversees immigration. He's great. He helped design DACA. Um, he had a lot of really favorable policies while he was under the Obama administration. Um, I think that he is going to pretty quickly reverse a lot of the policies that's been implemented over the past um, four years, specifically um, you know, DACA will probably come back, the public charge rule, which is basically, you could think of it as a wealth test for incoming in immigrants. I think he's basically going to do away with that. Um, one executive order that I've particularly got my eye on is Buy American, Hire American, which uh, Trump put forth. It was like the first week in office. Essentially, when you boil it down for immigration purposes, it's he, you got to be um, all the border officers and agents, when they're reviewing anything, uh, they need to, you know, look at everything with fine tooth comb and be a little more strict and diligent than they otherwise would be. I imagine that's going to get scrapped too. So what I think will happen, I think, I think Biden understands that immigrants are an important part of the economy, that economists generally agree that immigration is a net benefit, that when you break it down, they don't end up stealing jobs. They don't hurt local wages. They actually increase the amount of jobs. There's, you know, an economic surplus that ends up coming forth from it. Um, and he's got to come up with creative ways to stimulate the economy. And immigration could be a really big part of that. And I think he'll, you know, he's open to that being, um, you know, uh, a fixture of his plan. Um, so I I'm overall optimistic. I think it's going to be easier in the future for for Canadians to move uh, to the states, and yeah, on, on the Canadian side of the border, we're we're getting a lot of big tech uh, companies setting up because of immigration, which makes sense because Montreal is becoming a huge f hub for uh, tech and AI. <clears throat> so it really does. Montreal. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and also it's it's aligning up because I know Google is working on AI projects here. Um, you know, Toronto will always have mostly its financial hub for Canada. So it always... it, I think Google's setting up a, a big shop in Toronto also. Probably, yeah. But I just know there's, I know they have AI work going on in Montreal. In yeah. terms of where specific office, this not, I don't, I don't know the specifics of that. I just know Montreal is like a huge like AI hub. Yeah. And, um, and what about like, um, is there like a debate in terms of like the types of immigrants or like the quality, for example, like because of the way, I think that like a lot of the boomer jobs are not going to be replaced by a lot of the millennials. So trades, uh, specialty jobs, because a lot of young millennials are not focused on those things. So personally, from a ecosystem perspective, it will have to be something that is outsourced in order to replace those jobs, because there could be a huge gap once they mm -hmm. retire and pass away. So I see from like that perspective, I see a huge gap right there going forward. Yeah, from an immigration perspective, they're never really going to be that favorable to, you know, quote unquote, low skilled jobs. Um, you know, Dan, if I could take you for an example, Dan, you said you're, you know, your, your background's in consulting. As a Canadian citizen, you'd be primed for the TN visa. TN visa is basically the standard visa that all Canadians get to work in the States. 
you get it for three years at a time. It's technically renewable indefinitely. The main criteria of it though, is that you have to have uh, a degree in the relevant field. So for someone who's just, you know, uh, uh, in, in, he, he's got a trade job, whether he's a you know, mechanic or plumber or whatever, wouldn't be able to get him a TN visa. Someone like Dan, who's a consultant, you'd be able to get him a TN visa relatively easily. Um, so they're always going to favor, you know, those who are a little bit more educated and, and skilled. Um, but you are right in that there'll probably be some sort of gap for those kinds of jobs, um, which could always be filled by through immigration, mm -hmm. should the government be open to it. But it, there's always, you know, they're always battling public perception, right? Yeah, 100%. That's, that's the, main, the problem, yeah. If they're too lenient, they're, they're going to get roasted by certain media outlets and, you know, that they, they might get voted out depending on what, you know, mm -hmm. state they're representing. Um, so it's, it, it, it's a fine line to walk because even though the econ you know, the economists are pretty clear, I don't want to say there's consensus, but th th there's general agreement that immigration can help the economy and it can fill all sorts of different kinds of jobs. Mm -hmm but you're dealing with culture and politics and people there's, and opinion. there's other games being played from different frameworks and perspectives like from the way i see it is more from like a neutral perspective from like an ecosystem like just knowing where millennials are going and the way we're developing ourselves it's like you guys like i'm in the east end but most people here in the east end don't want to really go into trades but we know in the east end how important trades jobs are because it's a necessity especially from infrastructure perspective but most millennials don't want to do that type of work anymore so there's a problem going forward that yeah. has to be filled. And if the, let's say the political party doesn't want to do it because it causes social problems, but then they have to realize the people themselves are not doing it. It's you guys choose not to do it. We need to replace that somehow as a consequence of your inability or your lack of desire to do those things because they're hard or difficult or labor intensive. Yeah. And, and during this lockdown, I think, I think we we've all, you know, there's been a pretty big light, uh, shined on the type of workers that are essential and needed. Um, and a lot of those jobs aren't particularly glamorous. And I think you're right. I think, I think millennials might have a bit of a, uh, you know, inflated ego and not want to do those jobs, but there's no two ways about it. They're, uh, they're, they're quote unquote essential and someone's got to do them. I had, uh, I had, I was thinking of, I was thinking of something because I was watching some economic stuff. Like, so I had a thought that from a government's perspective, if they wanted to be optimal in terms of like job allocation or making sure that the gaps that we have economically get filled quickly and efficiently, like the system should kind of keep track of where in terms of which economic sectors are there gaps on an open public platform. So people as millennials, we can align ourselves going on the line. There's less people in these type of labor jobs, millennials. These are the opportunities that if you focus yourself, you'll probably get jobs in it. Uh, it's maxed out. There's very little demand left from the sector. If you guys go down this route, educational wise, your chance, chances are you're not going to get a job or you're going to get paid very little. But I think stuff like that is lacking in our system to provide educational guidance to younger people to align themselves with like a future kind of a job prospect. Yeah, and, and that also goes back to education, right? Uh, a lot of times schools aren't necessarily preparing you for any career or pointing you in any career direction. They're sort of just throwing everything at the wall at you, which is great because you want to be able to see what works and what doesn't. But at the same time, you know, some, you know, so, some concrete data and different routes um, would probably do the economy as a, as a whole. Yeah, well, because you're right, there's certain markets that are underserved and Shoot. Some that are overserved. Yeah, like now we have a now we have a lot of uh, real estate brokers. We have a lot of personal trainers. We have it's like a lot of hairdressers, a lot of yeah. restaurants. Yeah, and and I'll tell you what, the, the legal market is wildly oversaturated. So there kids who are coming out of law school right now cannot find an articling job. They can't find an and it's and it's brutal because you think about the you know these people they spent a whole whack of money they work yeah. their off. And now they, they can't, they, they just can't find a job, which is um, obviously these are wild circumstances, but even before the pandemic, it was brutally hard to find, you know, a good internship or a good articling position because the market was well oversaturated. And it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know that, 
you know, telling people beforehand would have stopped anyone from specifically going to law school. But in general, yeah, this could uh, this could inform a lot of people. Yeah, you know, because go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say we're kind of at an inflection point too mm-hmm. with uh, where because real estate is another one. Like I've got so many friends right now in real estate, and they're doing it like they're they're hustling, they're grinding. I'm sure you have a lot of friends that are all in real estate, but it's just like <laughs> we all have. How many how many friends or how many acquaintances do we know that are in real estate right now? And I'm just like, holy crap! So like, you know, at what point? does the cap stop? And then you've got an entire group that just says, I'm going to go do something else. Right. Like that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. I think as a generation too. Um, I think the other thing too, that you mentioned though, is like, look, like politics plays a huge role in immigration and just our society as unfortunate as it is. Um, Again, we're not going to talk about like which side we're on. That's not the point of this, but um, I think it's important too, to realize like, and you you had said it was, um, there needs to be some kind of metric, I think, for the type of people that come in, right? We can't just be letting in all the, you know, every single person for whatever cause, because then as taxpayers and as citizens, mm-hmm. we're born with the cost of trying to basically keep these people around and, and have their standards of living. So like, where do you think the line is for that? And I know it's like, a, I know it's a tricky question, but like, you know, at what, what should Canada or what should the U.S. be doing to like basically say, okay, this is where we're at optimally for society moving forward. Yeah, I think this goes back probably to what Nick was saying before, which is, so in, in general, I, I agree that there, there has to be some sort of criteria in terms of uh, whether you want to make it education-based or family-based there has to be some sort of justification, right? Because if you, if you just completely open up the borders without any, you know, any sort of barriers, the, it, the, the, who knows what will happen to the economy. I think it's, it's just going to be too much. Taxes yeah. are going to be insane. There's got to be some sort of system. I do think that the U.S. right now does have the right approach in, in, in how they're balancing economic interests, American interests, reuniting families. Um, but, you know, to go back to what Nick was saying uh, about specific um, industries, I do think that the system could do a little bit better in targeting specific industries that are underserved and reducing the requirements for them. So, you know, I'm, I'm just going to pick a random one. Um, you know, if, you know, the, the, they do some market research and they say, all right, we just don't have enough uh, plumbers in you know South Dakota. We're we're, we're going to allow you know if you if you have a one year certificate and you could prove that you could do that job, then you could come in for that purpose. I think there needs to be more quick and feasible options for low skilled workers in specific uh, geographic regions in specific industries. Um, that that I, I think that could probably do some good. I think I I think it would hundred percent allow things to be more flex. The, the ecosystem will be more flexible, more adaptable, and just be able to like evolve and shift quickly based on whatever it needs, because it can align itself based on whatever metrics or gaps that exist. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, we need this. We need because I know for a fact in Quebec we're going to need nurses going long term. That's a my mom worked in that industry for a long time. It, millennials hate it because they get abused, mistreated. Uh, good nurses are paid just as good as uh, just as much as bad nurses. So there's a whole there's a whole debate there that they hate, you know. And then it's the political structure and everything in the political structure tends to have high uh, high cost, low quality. So a lot of nurses don't want to go work there, especially younger people. So going long term, our medical system has a huge problem going forward. I, I think also um, construction. As we see in Montreal, I don't know if it's because of the fact that the management people are incompetent or just they don't have enough people to do the jobs. So that one's more a little open out there. But, you know, like there's 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 things happening that in five to 10 years, we're going to start observing them, especially as the transition between boomer to millennial occurs. Yeah, the, 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 there's going to there's going to be gaps. There's going to be uh, job openings and Im- Im- immigration has the capability, I believe, to meet all those needs. But, you know, as we keep coming back to, it's not as simple as, okay, yeah. here's a problem, here's a solution. There's all these other competing interests that care how you get from the problem to the solution. Uh, they need their interests, so to speak, to be considered. Um, so so it's, uh, it's complicated. It would take bold action. Biden, like every other president before him, you know, as, as 
far back as I know, has promised to basically overhaul the immigration system and has promised big legislative reform. He's promised to find, you know, there's, I think right now, like 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. He's promising a pathway to citizen, citizenship for all those people. <clears throat> so, excuse me, he's got big goals and big ideas that, and a lot of them will sort of serve these purposes. Um, but there's a House and there's a Senate and the, these bills mm -hmm. need to get approved by a lot of different people and there's subcommittees. So yeah. the, 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 these are, while talking about them, you know, between us, it seems like, yeah, there's a, a solution here. It's, uh, it's going to be difficult to get to. Yeah. There's a lot of bureaucracy. <laughs> in economics too it's a issue like milton freeman he always says you know there's always unintended consequences to policies and bureaucracy that is based off of good feelings so things never should be driven by good feelings they should be always driven based on a cost analysis does it make sense does it serve purpose to the greater good or does it serve purpose to a select few you should read uh, George Boras. He's a, a Harvard professor uh, of economics. Mid-90s, he was fit, he sort of rose to promise, or, or, or maybe he was well-known before that, but his earliest uh, you know, work that I've read, read about him. He coined the term uh, specifically with regards to immigration, uh, immigration surplus. And you know, he, he, he wrote a, a pretty well-known paper, which has since been cited you know, uh, up the wazoo, uh, explaining, you know, how economics are going to, how immigration is ultimately going to bring up wages. It's going to, you know, um, overall benefit the economy, that there's going to be a, a, a human capital surplus. Um, I, I, I think you'd be pretty interested about oh, it. 100%. Because the, the, the beauty of economics is that you have to always contextualize the time in which the economy, you're observing which economy. So 100 years ago, the context of that economy was a little different. It was merely, uh, it was more of a military type of ecosystem back in the day. So a lot of the economy was focused on infrastructure and military base. So a lot of the things they did back in the day was heavily driven by those two factors, which is why back then immigration was very important because one, you need to fill up the army and two, infrastructure was important, but you couldn't really do both with only your people and the birth. Yeah. So you needed, so context is huge. So it's another perspective because I've never, I, I have yet to really focus or study the immigration patterns of economic history so it's definitely something i'm interesting having have this conversation so after i'm down to have his name so i can read his probably start reading some of his stuff because it's it's yeah. not an angle that i've really focused on yet so it's definitely cool and yeah uh, I'll, uh, I'll shoot you over his uh his most well-known paper where, where he dives into it and sort of establishes these theories um cool. i i also when i was an undergrad had a, had a real passion for economics and um in it, you know, that, that was sort of my, my first real uh, main interest. So uh, the economics of immigration have always, uh, you know, been a curiosity of mine. Uh, I was going to ask was, do you see any other like countries like go beyond North America? Do you see trends building around the world in terms of other places or within border migration or global immigration? Because the way like the way we're looking at it now is that with the economic problems we're facing moving forward, Oftentimes throughout history, one of the primary factors for migration or immigration is usually has to do with economic opportunity, you know, ideologies, economic opportunity. I'm Italian by culture and by, by nationality. My grandparents, well, came your, here. your parents are immigrants, right? My yeah, exactly. My parents too, came so here for, they were little Matthew, kids, you know, you too, right? Like grandparents no, no. probably. Grandparents. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So like my parents came through Halifax, you know, they still, my grandparents, they stayed in when my, when my parents, they stayed in, uh, um, Setzil, you know, grew up over there when they were little kids. So it's like, but they did it because they had no choice. They came down. My grandparents worked on the uh, railroad. They needed them. They need labor. And uh, they left because there was no jobs in the south of Italy. That's why most of the south is primarily tourism, but there's no industrial component. So he would, well, we're from the south. So they had to come here to find jobs. It was economic opportunity. So moving down the line with the economic problems and the and so on. Like, I think there's going to be a point in time where a lot of younger people are going to have to do a real self-reflection and say, there is no more economic opportunity from here. It's either I continue to suffer. I allow my kids to suffer in this environment, or I do what every other human has ever done throughout humanity. It's move according to where there is opportunity. 
Yeah, so, so my practice is really limited to the states in Canada, so I can't speak to global trends. If I had to guess, though... Yeah, yeah, yeah. go, go, go. I would say most countries are probably going to take a more, like, nationalism approach and close off their borders because in their mind that'll protect their own kind of thing and save their jobs for uh, their their own citizens. Local, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I, I would be surprised if this you know, pandemic leads to, you know, more open borders and, and meet more free flowing labor. I, I imagine most countries um, are really just going to be thinking about the, the short term need um, and getting their unemployment rates back up because, um, you know, for obvious reasons, yeah, yeah. rates are down. And there, there's also a huge political aspect of it, right? No one's going to get reelected <laughs> when they're unemployment in any country. You know, it's, it's, it's just going to be an uphill battle. And usually most politicians just care about being reelected. Um, so uh, if I had to guess, no, it'll probably go restrictive. Mm-hmm. And what do you what do you think of the Cayman Islands? Because it's, it's a thing I've been thinking about lately. Just curious. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's because I, I, because the, the guy, the guy, the guy I met last week or talked to, he he's from Montreal, too. But he moved to the Cayman Islands because they got a job offer over there. So he comes back between Canada and the Cayman Islands. But one of the things that I had spoken to him on the side was, you know, he goes, it's more of a freer type market over there. So government doesn't get in your way. People don't bother each other. You know, it's more of an open border as long as you have a, you meet the wealth requirement because they're, they're, they have more of a wealth type of requirement that are higher than most places. But I, I'm just curious to know if anybody talks in your environment about Cayman Islands or it just it's something that I've been thinking about down the line potentially. As you know, for myself or whatever. Not really, but but the theory is interesting, right? Would it be that if you just got rid of the you know the, the border restrictions and you know taxes and e- economic barriers, would you get a better society? Would would more people be better off if you just let the market do what the market was going to do? Yes, a free hand um, on the market. But you see, but you see depends. It all you see the thing is we can go back and forth with different angles. It, it's hard to. I think that at the end of the day, it really depends on the framework you take and who you're trying to serve and how you're trying to serve them. If you're taking a pure economic perspective and you say, well, look, guys, in reality, by natural law, you need to become a little more responsible for yourself. So if you're afraid of us bringing in immigrants to take your job, that starts with education, though. Yes, 100 percent. But then it becomes the issue is that, well we're not going to allow people to come in because you're afraid or you don't want to work hard enough to fill up those jobs. But now that I'm willing to provide a solution to the collective ecosystem, not to an individual's interests. Now there's a problem from the social people because now they're complaining. Yeah. But, but studies are showing time and time again, the study came out two months ago out of Northwestern with a couple of different schools showing that immigration increases the amount of jobs does not take away jobs. Immigrants come in and they bring jobs. And the reason why they end up bringing jobs is because immigrants more than natives are more likely to start businesses. Mm-hmm. And, the, and of those businesses, they usually create good jobs, well-paying jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, 100%. So the- look, look, if you look at data in the United States, the two highest paid uh, uh, ethnic groups are Asians and Indians. Two of the hardest yeah. groups. And most of them are immigrants. Yeah, I, uh, but but it's... It's short-sighted thinking that I, I think a lot of people suffer from, which is, all right, people are going to come in and they're going to steal our jobs and the economy is going to be worse off. My taxes are going to pay for them because it, it's not a difficult line of thinking to get to. Um, you know, it, it, it takes some study and some analysis to see that that isn't the case, that it's, it actually goes the other way. Um, but most people are lazy and most people don't care to read studies or, you know, uh, be informed or like, like Dan said, you know, get, you know, either go to school or educate themselves on these topics. I think it's the, the, the you know, the term of, we say in the, in the well, I mean, in economic theory, the uh, co- competitive competition drives quality, drives innovation, it, and it drives the system forward. Immigrants is a threat to people that don't want to be innovative, that don't want to work hard. That's how I see it. In terms yeah. of that way, because for me, immigrants uh, yeah, simply, that. it will simply increase competition. So as someone who respects the nature of competition, which natural law abides by, because mm-hmm. the whole realm of, of, of the world abides by competition, you know, you have to, everything is scarce by nature. So people are just afraid because they expect to be fathered by the government rather than 
take responsibility and tell your kids, guys, there's people in here that want money, that want to work, pursue something and make something of yourself. Don't wait for somebody to hold your hand there. You've got to do it yourself. Yeah, I agree. People don't want to hear that though. <laughs> I know, 100%. 100%. <laughs> they, only hear, they only want to hear like what they want to hear at the end of it. But I, I also think it's interesting too. It's like, I personally think that immigration should be based on merit. Like what Nick is talking about and what you've talked about, Matt, too, is like, look, bring a specific skill set, add some value to the system, <laughs> right? And if you can create a society that's not dependent on government, but also allows for the ability for you to create, like, just be creative and go back to like, okay, why are you here? Always go back to like your why and like give mm. people this reason of like saying, okay, this is why you're here. You know, just empower them as opposed to saying, hey, here's a government check for 800 bucks, thousand bucks, do whatever you want, how are your life? We'll keep you on that for, you know, whatever until you until you find something. It's uh, everything is, um, I don't know. I, I don't see any positive trends building, honestly. I just see a lot of negative trends. So it's like, well, you got to be an optimist, man. No, I know, but. Well, hold but, on. This, but this pandemic will breed opportunity and oh 100 percent who, who it depends on the side you're on right but any but at the end of the day any way you slice it there's going to be new industries born out of this there's going to be new job opportunities um a lot of industries will be flipped upside down and they won't operate the way they used to yeah. um, so you know if, if there are people out there who you know who 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 want to, you know, take initiative and do something new. Not, not, not to say that, you know, people coming up and looking for jobs and looking for work or looking to move right now aren't going to face a whole whack of different, you know, challenges and obstacles because they're going to be dealing with things that, you know, people haven't dealt with, you know, within society maybe since, I don't know, the 30s or... Yeah, uh, uh, 100%. Economically speaking so, alone, there's things happening that we just haven't seen in a long, long time. Right, so... You know, it'll be very interesting to see where we are, even like six months from now. Where what does the economy look like? All right, like all right, assume a vaccine comes and assume everyone takes it. Does the economy bounce back right away? Does it no. take a year? Does it take five years? You know, it. it you know, how quickly uh, do businesses reopen? Like, if you had a restaurant and you lost your shirt and pants like during this thing, are you just going to say, all right, I'm just going to go do it again? No, but that's one of the biggest things now is, and that's why I was saying, cause I have a lot of friends in the restaurant business and one of them, some of them are still operating. They're doing delivery and all that stuff. And I was telling them, I go, if you can find a way to sustain yourself through this crisis as a restaurant, especially in Montreal, where it's extremely saturated, we have the, one of the highest restaurants per, per capita, per capita yeah. in the world. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's huge. Montreal. We have a lot of restaurants. I don't know if it's the whole world, but we have a lot definitely, of restaurants. Definitely in North America. I think it's up there with Miami. Yeah, sure. we have a lot of restaurants here. So I was telling them, I was go, if you can sustain and you can penetrate this and endure, there's going to be collapses. Just wait till the stimulus money finishes. Once that capital dries out, you're going to see a lot more rippling effect, the domino effect of like collapsing businesses. And I go, if you can sustain yourself, your market share is just going to expand purely yeah. through the fact that you're going to just, it's oversaturated and a lot of them are just going to vanish. And now a lot of people going forward are going to have that risk factor in their brain. Is it worth opening up a restaurant? What happens if in two years, the virus just deviates on us or just a new virus comes around and now they shut down my restaurant again and I'm full pin debt and I haven't even gotten the chance to pay off anything yet. So I, there's definitely going to be that risk factor moving forward with everybody in all kinds of industries. Yeah. And restaurants specifically in Montreal, you got to deal with the weather, right? So <laughs> if you're in Miami, like, all right, you might be able to open up a patio and, and sustain, but they got to deal with the weather here. So, you know, our, our city faces uh, a unique set of challenges yeah, you know, because of that. I can't. Uh, I want to. I want to talk story. about uh, one last thing, or we can talk about whatever we want. But um, there's something happening with politicians, economists, uh, finance guys, lawyers all over the world, um, and it was deemed a conspiracy theory uh, for the last five years. If you mentioned it, people were like, "Yo, you're 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 a nutcase!" Like. What are you talking about? And it's come out of the you know the politician's mouth now. It's something called the Great Reset, <laughs> um, which is essentially the idea that everybody is going to have sort of the equality aspect 
of the of economic benefits coming in, but you're going to, the only way for that to happen is to get higher taxes and to basically uh, a progressive have, liberal socialistic economic ecosystem. Well, hold on, hold on. But like also the fact that you have mass immigration to coming in. So I, I'm just curious to know, like, what do you know about this great reset? And like, what do you think about it? Honestly, not, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I gotta be honest. This is the kind of thing that, that hasn't really taken up, uh, you know, much space for me. Um, Cause immigration is a big component of this, of this. Well, piece. It's to subsidize. It's to help pay for those taxes that they don't want just the people to pay. They want more people in so they can reduce because the, the premise is this. If you have more people to tax, you can tax mm. each person less. But that's assuming that there's enough capital in the ecosystem to pay enough wages for people to earn enough to partake in that desired outcome, which requires capital to flow. It requires innovation, requires businesses. So from the Keynesian framework of economics, where state knows best, you know, like if you can kind of artificially prop up the economy, create mm -hmm. artificial flow, you can kind of help pay for people to come in and then you're still taxing less each person, but you're making more money as a consequence. I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, Matt, but I'm just really curious to know, like, what, what do you think? No, about it, 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 it's an interesting theory, and I'm, I'm, I'm gathering my thoughts sort of as we're in the moment here. Um, migration could meet that gap for sure. There's, there's always going to be enough of demand, and there's always going to be people wanting to go to desirable places. You know, one thing that happens whenever there's an election, specifically in, in 2016, right? So Trump wins and there's, a, and there's a huge segment of the population that says, oh, we, we, you know, we want out of the States. We, we, we don't want to leave. And you keep seeing all these, like, these, these stories, right? Yeah. Completely false. Does, like, th th there was no data or anything to support that. People still wanted to be in the States and the desirability didn't go down at, at, at all. And, you know, at this election, there was uh, those same stories. It, we haven't seen any trends of people leaving the States and I don't expect to. So th there's always going to be enough of that uh, a demand. So the idea that you know immigrants could come in and you could tax them more, um, I think that's a theory that could, you know, probably be used um, within Biden's probably upcoming stimulus package. You know, the idea that immigrants won't just you know fill the jobs and you know boost the economies in the traditional ways, but there's also the fact that you could you know get increase your tax revenue um that aspect of it i i, I agree with I, I agree with and i think but the, the entire theory uh that we're discussing here i, I don't know how feasible mm -hmm. it's <laughs> it falls more within the realm of like a, the like a, the world F um, economic forum they had talked about it uh, trump talked about it trudeau talked about it but trudeau's was a little more a progressive type of uh statements but it falls more within because at the end of the day that reset is kind of like resetting the economic ecosystem in order to have more of a progressive liberal ecosystem where people don't have to really produce anything and everything is more centralized in the economy so the government takes care more of you than you have to take care of yourself is it is it is it maybe is the theory that ai is going to take over and that people are going to lose their jobs and they're going to need this sort of government support no idea that, that I don't. That, that, um... I I would say that is sort of the premise of. I would say that's kind of like the backbone of it. But I would I would I'd also say about it is it's like, at some point, you as an individual in society will have no need to own stuff. Yeah. Because everything is you, centralized. You, everything is so centralized that yeah. everything kind of just runs itself. But you can just be yourself. You know, you have a job. You do whatever it is. But you don't own anything. You don't know Which anything. to me personally no just sounds, yeah, it just sounds a little crazy for me personally, but I, I that's kind of the premise of that idea. Yeah. Uh, scary. I find it scary. You know why it's such a scary thought is because like, you know, as I'm sitting here thinking about that, like it, it, it's not absurd to think of a world where, you know, AI overtakes, you know, mm -hmm. slowly but surely. 10 a lot of jobs. Of those, those will be the really scary times where they take over like 30 or 40% of the jobs, but not all the jobs. Mm -hmm. That'll be the really scary point. If it gets to the point where they've taken over all jobs and now it's just a new life that we have to get used to, then, then okay. But once you've got like 30% unemployment, like some absurd number like that, 
that's when you're going to get chaos. There's, there's a huge theory that one of the biggest primary factors that really forced humans to innovate drastically forward into machines and AI was the fact that because of minimum wage, because of inflation, because of government borrowing from the future to funnel short-term actions, that mm-hmm. they've caused a massive inflation in wages and costs and taxes that it forced people as a business to say, well, we need people to innovate in technology and AI because human cost and labor is becoming way too expensive that most businesses, especially small and medium, their profit margins are being extremely marginalized. So to become more sustainable, they have to find a way to increase their margins. And AI is becoming a solution for that. But it's one that was driven purely by the unintended consequences of government action forcing an inf- massive inflation in the economy, massive wages increase, massive taxes, which marginalize businesses. And this is the solution to those very actions. Yeah. And, 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 and those are consequences that no one could ever for- foresee. Like, I, like I'm sure in the back of their mind, you know, the, the, the idea is that, all right, technology might, you know, eat, eat up some of the stuff, but I don't, I don't think anyone could, could have, you know, foreseen what AI might bring in the future mm-hmm. that we now have, have a better idea about. Mm-hmm. I think also you also have, you know, we had this, these lockdowns are still going on the whole digital shift a 10 year digital shift basically happened in a span of eight months, Mm -hmm. right? What was supposed to take 10 years happened in six to eight months. So people are like, what am I supposed to do with myself? Right. But people are also learning to be more efficient and businesses are learning to be more efficient because they're realizing how, how much time or how much money they wasted on stuff that, you know, was thought to be a necessity 25 years ago, but now just is a waste. And they're realizing that they're operating just fine without it. So they're shifting to, to be more technology-based, um, which yeah. will, will ultimately be a good thing. Um, maybe not for real estate, but uh, there'll be benefits. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. <laughs> All right, Matt. Well, look, thanks for coming on. I know that uh, there's a lot of stuff happening moving forward. We just got to keep at it. And uh, I know that before you came on the podcast, you were a pretty big fan, right? So that's why. And I wanted to bring you on too, just to get a very different perspective uh, from a legal standpoint too, because you you, you do bring that element as well. Uh, One last question for you. Are you an investor? Yes. And what do you invest in? Uh, I don't make those decisions. I, I've, uh, I've, I've got some people to, to advise me on that. Cause I, you know, it's sort of like, know what you know, know what you of don't course. know. Delegate, uh, delegate. So, uh, I, I ultimately don't make those decisions, but, uh, you, you know, th- th- there's nothing particularly cutting edge, you know, uh, like I'm not in Bitcoin or, uh, or, or any cryptos, um, you know, pr- pretty basic stuff, banks, um, you know, well-known companies. I, I, I don't have anything particularly exciting on that front. Um, but I do deal with a, a lot of people who are in, investing in really interesting stuff because, uh, you know, one of the visas that I do most often is the E2 investor visa. Spark notes of it is guy comes in, puts a hundred grand into anything in the United States and gets a visa based off it. Hmm. Um, so, so uh, uh, you know, uh, a few times throughout the week, I'll either be writing or editing a business plan. Um, so I, I, I come across some, some pretty interesting investments. Nice. It's really cool. I've got to get me one of those visas soon. I'm going to be planning on hopefully getting out of the U.S. at some point. But You, uh, you, you give me a shout, we'll set you up. <laughs> Love it. Love it. <laughs> Matt, thanks so much for coming on. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, Sign up to our newsletter, guys. We'll be available online. But again, Matt, thanks so much for coming on. This was awesome. I uh, had a great time. Nick, Dan, thanks uh, for inviting me on. Let's do this again. Thanks, man. Thanks. Follow us on newgenmindsetpodcast.com and our newsletter. And we will see you next time. Thanks so much, guys, for listening.